Today we're going to be talking about one of the unique and great blessings that we have from Jesus. One thing that Jesus stressed time and time again and stresses in the Bible is that those who trust in Him can have assurance. There is certainty when you trust in Jesus. And it's because of what He's done. It's because of who He is and it's because of what He promises. It is unique and it is great. We can have assurance. We can have certainty regarding not only our lives now, but our lives to come. Just listen to some of these statements from Jesus as I quote Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Or how about this? Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them from my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. And that's right before He raises someone from the dead, so we know He's not just blowing smoke about His power. John chapter 7, well, I shouldn't, don't, don't turn there, just quotes from Jesus. It's from John 17. So, next one. When Jesus spoke these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven. Listen to this assurance. And said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished, having accomplished that certainty, the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Those are off the top of my head samplings from Jesus, quotations from Jesus when he was here on earth, stressing assurance. Not because we can be so sure of ourselves, but because of who He is, because of who He's been sent by, because of the power He has, because of the work that He did, and because of the promises that He spoke. Certainty. Assurance. We might even put it like this. We, we can have assurance because of, <clears throat> excuse me, because of His certainty. And it absolutely is amazing. And it is unique. And it is great. And it is grand. And God, I know that I know that I know God wants all Christians who believe in Jesus to have assurance. Confidence. Because the work of Christ is done. This is something that Christianity has always stressed. This is something that is basic part and parcel in the DNA and the fiber of authentic, historic Christianity. But as you might guess, having said that over here, therefore, it's been something that's been questioned, compromised, taught against, sold out again and again and again. It's been happening since Jesus spoke about it. 
It's been happening ever since. It happens now. And that's what the book of 1 John is really about. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to the first letter of John. That's not John chapter 1. That's 1 John, as they would say in England. Okay, so turn to 1 John. Not Isaiah, (laughs) but 1 John. 1 John. It's John, the same writer of the gospel according to John, the apostle who was with Jesus, as we will see. And some time has passed. Jesus has died. Jesus has been raised. Jesus has ascended. And now we have Christianity full force. And out of a pastoral concern, out of a burden as a fellow Christian, because of confused Christians, because of false teachers... John the Apostle of Jesus, that means he writes with the authority of Jesus, John the Apostle of Jesus has to help Christians understand and, and if you will, he has to remind them or re-remind them of what they would have already known from Jesus. That because of Jesus and because of who he is, because of where he came from, because of what he accomplished, because of what he promised, you can have assurance. You can have confidence because those you ready to take the gloves off those who are questioning that and trying to infiltrate Christianity were saying otherwise and John takes the gloves off and he calls them deceivers and he even calls them antichrists And if you even stop and think about that, we won't actually get to that text today. But if Christ says, I give eternal life to everyone who believes in me, and then someone questions that, by definition, that is antichrist. And so 1 John is designed to remind Christians of who Jesus is and what he's done and what the Christian life looks like so that Christians can be reminded of what Jesus said all along. You can have confidence in Him, and if you have confidence in Him, you can be sure. And so what we're going to do this morning is start a study of 1 John, 1 John, and we'll look at the opening verses today. We'll just kind of get things rolling in 1 John. And as we do so, this morning my outline is going to be five features of 1 John that can help you appreciate the book, Appreciate assurance, understand assurance. So five features that will help you understand First John, that will help you appreciate assurance and its reality. Christ hopefully induces worship, promotes worship. But that's what we're going to be doing this morning. Number one, first feature regarding First John, assurance is in fact... I read that this morning, I was rereading my notes and I thought it was a typo. I don't mean assurance is a fact. That's a whole other issue. We've already established that. We'll see that. Assurance is in fact. In other words, Christian assurance is in history. It's tied to history. It's tied to reality. It's tied to the objective. It's tied to something that actually happened. Uh, Assurance is not in feeling, as as good as feelings are. It's in fact. It's in what happens. It's not in what may or may not change. It's what's already happened. So that's what I mean by saying Christian assurance is in fact. And by the way, it's in fact because it's in Christ. 
Because he's a factual, historic, real being who really came here, we're going to see. Underscored in verses 1 to 4. But let, so let's begin looking at it. So remember, think in terms of John is trying to re-remind Christians about basic Christianity. Because if you don't understand basic Christianity, you wouldn't have assurance. And so basic Christianity, Christianity 101, here we go. It's in fact John 1, or excuse me, you know I'm going to keep doing that. First John 1. Here we go. That which was from the beginning, which we, remember he's John the Apostle who was with Jesus, and he was with him from the beginning. Notice it sounds a lot like John. John's Gospel account. Have heard. John's saying, I've heard this along with the other apostles and other believers. Have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched or handled with our hands concerning the word of life, the word of life incarnate, namely he's talking about Jesus. We are eyewitnesses and earwitnesses and touch witnesses, right? And, and when, he, when he says all that he's saying, he's saying we're not talking about supra-history on some kind of philosophical level. We're talking about reality. We're not talking about imagination. We're not talking about good fiction. We ourselves, eyewitness, testimony, touch, spent time with, heard him speak. He's covering all the bases because we're talking about assurance is in fact. Verse 2. The life, referring back to Jesus was made manifest, revelation made clear, made known to us, was made manifest. Not, not some kind of secret dark thing. It's made manifest. Revelation talk, and we have seen it, and testify to it and proclaim to you. Right? As I like to say, live on the scene, credibility. We're here. Right? Not, not imagination, not a dream, not a fantasy. Not what we wish to be true. No. We, we, we testify. Credible testimony. And then it says, the eternal life. As an aside, great cool title for Jesus. Right? He promises eternal life, even as we read in John's Gospel account, to all who believe in Him. And the one who promises eternal life is, is designated the eternal life. It's cool. Amazing. Which was with the Father and was made manifest. Again, there's a second time we've got revelation talk, clarity talk. No, not mystery, not hidden, not in darkness, not in dreams, but reality. Made manifest to us. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Now, it really is clear what he's trying to get at. I want to make sure we see it clearly. Assurance, if you can have confidence that you have eternal life, it's not based upon you and yourself. It's not based upon somebody who made something up in their basement. 
It's not made up by some huckster who created something so that they could have a better jet or whatever it is. John is saying, we ourselves. Historic reality. Boots on the ground. Sandals on the ground, sorry. And that legitimate, credible Christianity, not all of the antichrist, deceiver, fake Christianity, legitimate, genuine Christianity that's tied to apostles, believe this. And that's why we can be sure. That's why we can have certainty. A little bit of an aside. Um, someone asked me this week to read a doctrinal statement for something and to sign off on something. And, um, and, and it started, the, do, the doctrinal statement for a Christian organization started off this way. These three words. We feel that... I just started laughing. We feel that. I feel a lot of things. I feel a lot of things that are not in sync with reality. Again, feelings are great, and feelings can be terrible. When we're talking about legitimate, authentic, historic, biblical Christianity, John wouldn't have said, we can be certain because I felt something. Unless you mean actually touched, right? Because of a historic person, Jesus. This wasn't from the inside. This was actually from the outside, come from heaven. And that makes all of the difference in the world because we're not talking about fantasy games. We're not talking about well-meaning or maybe bad-meaning people. That's why we would say, we believe that. We have confidence that. And then it's something in someone outside of us. I just needed to get that off my chest because I thought it was so ridiculous. So thank you for listening. Please don't talk like that, by the way. And I, I know this is like, you know, the, I get the pulpit, so I do this kind of stuff. But like, even when, when my family or I hear people that are talking about, you know, history or math or whatever, and I feel that two plus two is four, what in the world are you talking about? Well, I feel that it isn't. Welcome to my postmodern world. And who are you, who are you to judge me? I'll just go to my safe space. <laughs> I mean... We know things because of historic realities. Before we move on to the next one, lest I forget, a lot of this whole argument that John's going to use is, is an argument of genuine, legitimate, apostolic authority. Because they were really there. And you've got these other teachers who are saying contrary things. And if the apostles were really there and they really touched Jesus and they really heard Jesus and they really spent time with Jesus and multiple uh, apostles, they're eyewitnesses, then that's where the authority is. So these other teachers are saying, well, you know, Jesus didn't really come to earth. It was just uh, some kind of spirit being. 
Jesus didn't really propitiate the wrath of God. Um, we have this extra measure of the Spirit and you guys don't have it, so we know things that you guys don't know. There's going to be all of this kind of argumentation back and forth. And in some ways, if you just want to sim- simplify it, John is a legitimate apostle because he was really with Jesus and really witnessed these things and really heard Jesus interpret those things. And all of this other stuff, by definition, therefore, ends up being wrong. Because it's contrary to what John heard from Jesus and saw from Jesus. So it just causes me to, to bring that up, and maybe it'll help you read the book better. What we don't have in First John is a list of, okay, here are the false teachings. In fact, what we have a lot of in First John is the positive. There's some negative but but we can we can understand we can put the pieces together we can reconstruct it in a certain way with a level of confidence based on what he has to stress in first john we can have a good idea of what the false teachers were stressing they were stressing the opposite john saw things and witnessed things and knew things and he's an apostle and these other guys i'm going to oversimplify her saying but god told us god told us god told us and since they don't mesh, John is going to say, you're antichrists, you're deceivers, you're liars. I was with Jesus. And there's something there for us to, to learn. And we'll see this throughout First John, and I'll keep emphasizing it. Because that's not an old thing that's gone and passed away. In that sense, we need the, the letter of First John like never before. To return to genuine, legitimate, apostolic authority like in First John that we have inscripturated because there's all kinds of people that say God told them all kinds of things that end up undermining your confidence in the gospel and your, therefore, your assurance. It's really, it's alive and well. So let's move on. Let's move on to number two, okay? And some of these will be really quick, like number two. Number two, assurance is worth defending. That's another feature. Assurance is worth Defending. I'll just pick three words in verse 2 to tell you it's worth defending. The eternal life. We're talking about Jesus who is called the eternal life and the eternal life gives eternal life to everyone who believes. And if that's true, and I'm going to stake my eternal destiny on it and look like a fool in front of people like you guys. Fool being me, not you. I'll rant and rave. I never wanted to be a preacher growing up. What a crazy guy up there. I'm willing to do it. If we're talking about the eternal life, this is worth defending. This is worth looking crazy for. This is worth losing friends over and looking weird socially. If we're talking about the eternal life who gives eternal life to everyone who believes, that's a matter of certainty and assurance, then that's worth defending. That's worth John, uh uh-oh, what's he do? Naming names. Saying, oh, those guys over there that you like, those men and women, they're antichrists. And they're deceivers. Oh, and you think, oh, I don't believe I would have said that. That doesn't sound very Christian. <laughs> That's how we think. What's not very Christian is when Jesus came here, spoke and did things, and interpreted what he did, and then for people to say, well, God told me. That's not Christian. But Christians get lured into it, right? What does a lure do? A lure tricks the fish. 
so that you can eat them. <laughs> Christians get lured into these kinds of things because of the God talk. These people are doing lots of God talk and the apostle has to drop the gauntlet and say, this is what Christianity teaches. Everything else is antichrist. These aren't personality differences. That's interesting. As an aside, you know, the Apostle Paul talks about dealing with those he disagrees with, like in Philippians. And he's like, it doesn't matter. But they were people who had different motives than he had. They weren't people who had different understandings of the gospel. Because in Philippians, he ends up calling that group evil workers. So we can have differences, we can have disagreements, and every time you disagree with me on something, and I'm right and you're wrong, (laughs) or vice versa, (laughs) we don't have to call one another antichrist. (laughs) But in 1 John, we're talking about the biggies. Like the incarnation. Okay? Like the substitutionary atonement. Like the real humanity of Jesus. And those kinds of things. Worth defending. Worth being judgy. I didn't know how to spell judgy. I just put a dash Y on the end of it. Microsoft Word liked it. Maybe maybe one other um, good point of contrast. If you just go to chapter 5 of 1 John with me. We're just getting acclimated to the book. We're going to look at the first four verses today. We're still talking about that second feature. Assurance is worth defending. If everything is just kind of a matter of grayness, and there's really no such thing as right and wrong, then assurance isn't worth defending. It's not worth name-calling. It's not worth me being a weirdo preacher up front raising my voice. But if we're talking about contrasts of right and wrong, true and false, then it's, then it's worth it. And it's so interesting to me, at the end of First John, the true and false contrast that is there. Look with me, if you would, at verse 20. In verse 20, it says, we know, and we know, notice the, the assurance kind of talk. This is First John 5, 20. And we know that the Son of God has come, has come, It's going to be a big stress in this book. And has given us understanding so that we may know confidence, assurance, know who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Now all that's awesome and good, and I could just stop there and I think make the point. But do notice, carry that thrust at the last sentence. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from... Idols. True God is what I circled and then drew an arrow. True God, contrast, idols. Not true God and lesser gods on the God continuum. And whichever one works for you is fine. No, true God revealed in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. True God and idols. Those are our options. If those are our options, assurance is worth defending. I mean, think about, if, you, if you've ever seen someone, some of you have, of just doing like raw gloves off, just raw idol worship. 
where it's clearly something they or someone else has made. And at least for your Western eyes, it's pretty striking and it's pretty unique. Maybe the more you know about the different cultures, the more you travel, and it's not that unique because you see all different kinds. But if you just stop and think about it, in fact, the Old Testament talks about it. You know, we, we chop the tree down, we carve it, we, and then we put it down there and we worship what we made. When you stop and think about it, and I'm asking you to do that, it's pretty gross. It's pretty insane. It's pretty bizarre. And the Antichrist and the, dece- the deceivers who are trying to infiltrate the church are doing God talk, Jesus talk, Holy Spirit talk, God told me this, we don't believe that part, we have special authority. And John the Apostle says, idol worshipers. Point being, he doesn't want Christians to be idol worshipers. I mean, that doesn't even make sense. I would encourage you to think in those terms. I hope and pray that that happens in our study of 1 John. Not so that we all just become so far narrow in our thinking that we're no fun to be around. But clarity of thought regarding who Jesus is, where He came from, what He did, what He taught, and to be able to say, true God and everything else is idolatry. I hope that happens. I'm willing to lose some sleep over it. I'm willing to invest some prayer in it. The one true living God from God from heaven saying, this is my son. Let's move on to number three. And third feature. I said that one was going to be fast, and I had way too much fun and went way too slow. So, number three, assurance brings legitimate fellowship. Assurance brings legitimate fellowship. Fellowship is partnership. Fellowship is closeness. Fellowship is personal, relational. Uh, There's unity in fellowship. And it seems... Scholars are in agreement with this. I'm not just making this up. It seems when, when John has to stress the uniqueness of fellowship, it's probably in contrast to the false teachers who, who, who really had a great group of friends. Maybe they were a growing group. Maybe they were the cool kids. And there's the draw to go and be with them. I think I want to go. I want to have fellowship with them. There seems to really be something going on there. Somehow, fellowship is probably a word they were using. And this unique kind of unity that we have, and a unique kind of ministry that we have, and we've got our fellowship, and we're, we're really together in this, and there's a real something special going on here with us. And it seems, and I think credibly so, John uses that language to try to help real Christians. How about verse 3? That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Yeah, but John, you, how old are you by now? You're, you're pretty, pretty weathered. You're definitely not part of the cool kids. 
And you, you keep talking about the once and for all delivered to the saints faith that you heard from Jude. Doesn't seem very cutting edge. And you're telling us that we ought not fellowship with these people over here. In fact, you're calling them antichrist, and that is so like, you know, mean-spirited. John says, indeed, uh, excuse me, that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship, this is why fellowship with them is so good. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. Ah! You, you want, the, the kind of fellowship you want is not with the crazy people who say God said all the time. And you know they're lying because it doesn't match apostolic authority. Who cares if they have a huge following? You know what matters? For, John is saying, for you to have fellowship with us, those who are really with Jesus, who really saw, who really know, who really heard. What you really want is fellowship with us. Because we have fellowship with the Father. <laughs> and His Son, Jesus, the one I'm going to have to defend in this letter as the one who really and truly came here and really and truly became one of us and really and truly represented us as a substitute and really and truly made atonement for sin as a substitute and really and truly did all of these things as our high priest. You really want to be with us, he's saying. It's the best kind of fellowship. It's the right kind of fellowship. But, but you know what? That will preach today with not much effort. Here's what I mean. It doesn't take much for me to step over the culture and say, there's a lot of draw to be with the cool kids. I mean, most of you are cool. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> there's always something new. Always something faddish. We want to have fellowship with those who have fellowship with the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, assurance brings true joy. Assurance brings true joy. Again, we have to reconstruct a little bit here, but since he emphasizes joy in the letter, it's probably something that false teachers were doing. Do you want to have a happy life? Do you want to be fulfilled? Do you want to have all of your problems solved? Do you want to have perfect relationships? Do you want to have... Yeah, we want, we want all that stuff. And, and they weren't advertising themselves as, you know, Omaha Antichrist Church. That's what John calls them. Home of the deceiver. That sounds kind of good. Good byline. Deceivers are us. <laughs> it's not that. It's not that, but they, they seem to be the happy group who have it all together. And everything's going great. And if you're doing the right thing, then your life is going to be positive or whatever it is, because John does pick up and utilize that joy reality. But he uses it a bit differently. Let's go ahead and look in verse 3 again. I'll call it 3b. So that you too may have fellowship with us, like the people who were exiled on islands. Right? Tell, tell me about a good life. Not a good life. And indeed, like John, indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, for, and we are writing these things, positive and negative, 
for clarity's sake, about assurance and security, so that our joy may be complete. First, I'm going to read it the wrong way. It assumes that their joy would be complete. <laughs> it's not reading it the wrong way, but that's an assumption. You, you, you really want to have a happy life? Well, it's going to have to do with eternity and putting everything into perspective, given the fact that Christ hasn't returned yet, which is going to be an emphasis in the book. Because the false teachers are going to say your life is going to be great before he returns. And in the book, no, he needs to return, and that's when your life is great. They've got an over... Fancy word, you ready for me to drop some knowledge? They have an over-realized eschatology. You don't need to go to seminary. So, they've got it wrong. They've got it confused. Joy is going to be found in Christ who conquered the grave, who atoned for sin, who reconciles you to God, who guarantees glorification, not in this life, but in the next life. You want joy, it's found in Him. It's so interesting, though, that John says that our joy may be made complete. The other is also true. But what does every Christian really want for other Christians? Especially if they're true Christians. Especially if they're loving other Christians, which is what Christians are supposed to do, which is a problem in 1 John. John, pastorally and Christianly, wants other Christians to know who Jesus really and truly is so they can trust in Him the sure one, so they can have assurance and certainty in the historic Christ, the returning Christ. John wants that for them, and it will mean their joy, but John wants that for them because that will be his joy. It's what you love to have happen. I love to have great experiences in my life. Selfishly, I really love it. But but it's true as a Christian, I love it when other Christians experience freedom that comes only from being in Christ. And they they can know things. It's so exciting. You know this. If you're a Christian, you learn something and it's so amazing about the work of Christ and promises. And then what's even better, maybe not better, but still good, right? What's also awesome is when somebody else learns it. And they're starting to put the pieces together and there's something so wonderful about it. I love it. It, Quite honestly, is one of the great reasons why I love to be a pastor but it's on a Christian level as well. To make our joy, that's joyous. It's awesome. How are we doing? Illustration or no illustration? Um, No illustration. Well, okay, quick. I'm conflicted. I'm in counseling about it. This week my daughter who's not here this morning, so I'll use her as an illustration. She's at the high school retreat. She texted me and she said, hey, Dad, guess what my, and I can't remember what, what teacher it was, but guess what my AP history teacher just said, you know. And I won't totally sell out her AP history teacher, but these, anyway, I'm going to be cautious. I'm thankful for AP history teachers. But it was, some, there, it was something about theology and about Christianity and history. And it was exactly, exactly the wrong thing about a historic figure and what they taught. I, 
This is going to sound wrong, but I found such great joy in that. Not in saying the wrong thing, but in my daughter who's 16. It's like, Dad, you'll never guess. Oh, and, and she said, and my, my teacher also said, people who believe that, and again, I'm name, not naming the person, are fun haters. <laughs> and I love it because I know my daughter knows that I like to have fun. And, and fun haters? I like that she understands the gospel well enough. Oh, icing is she understands historical theology well enough, even as a young woman of 16. To be able to hear the wrong thing and go, that's not right. And I know it's not right. And it's not just because my parents taught me. That's revisionist history at best. Or maybe just ignorance. Ignorance at best. Revisionist history at worst. It gave me joy. I was like, awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for counseling, counseling me as a parent. Um, <laughs> I did offer to, to do a guest lecture in the school if the teacher wanted me to do that for her. <laughs> By the way, I did say to my daughter, let this be a good lesson for us when it comes to disagreeing with people that we need to have integrity and rightly represent them. To the point where if you, if you say so-and-so believes something and you're disagreeing with them, they should be able to say, yes, you're right. You're rightly representing my view. Christians should have integrity. Okay, let's do the final one. Number five, assurance is undermined liberally. Assurance is undermined liberally. And I don't mean politics liberals. I mean assurance is undermined in all different kinds of ways. So those who don't like assurance, they're such big givers. (laughs) That's what I mean. They don't like to hold anything back. Those who don't like assurance, they'll attack historic Christianity on all different kinds of fronts. Okay, and we don't really have time to get into all of these, but what we're going to see in this book is they attack the person of Christ in his humanity, in his reality, in his sufficiency. They will attack the work of Christ. They will attack sin in general. They'll attack the reality that Christians still struggle with sin. They will attack assurance by promoting what I'll call super spirituality, like sinless perfectionism. Uh, They'll attack assurance by promoting legalism. And by the way, one great sign of legalism is from people who say, God told me things. Because now they have new revelation and they can impose it on you. And no doubt it's going to mean legalism time and time again. Or it's going to lead to its opposite or, 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 or evil twin, and that's going to be antinomianism. You can do whatever you want to do. And that comes up in this book. Actually, both of them come up in this book. Not only that, those who undermine assurance are not into denying Christ, His work, His person, His incarnation, sin on different levels, promoting super-spirituality instead of ordinary spirituality, legalism, libertinism, or neonomianism, if you want to refer uh, to legalism as that. Um, We're going to see that these guys talk about the Spirit. We have the Spirit in a special way that you ordinary Christians don't have the Spirit. And John's going to make sure that the Christians know, you have the Spirit. Don't be intimidated. Oh, that's going to be a whole other thing we're going to talk about when we study First John, is spiritual intimidation. Okay? And that will be important because if you have assurance and security in Christ, 
you don't need to be intimidated by the false teachers. But if you don't, you're going to be intimidated by these people who push this new stuff on you. Pluralism, we'll talk about that, that Jesus can't be the only one and only Savior, the Savior of the world, but John deals with that. Um, There's so, so much. We'll end on a a good quote about intimidation. I looked up intimidation in some different dictionaries. Very simple definition, because we're going to hear about this a lot. Uh, Intimidation is a behavior that would cause a person of ordinary sensibilities to fear injury or harm. Intimidation, ordinary sensibilities to fear injury or harm. You know what we're going to find in 1 John? 1 John emphasizes the ordinariness of Christianity. Ordinary Christianity is actually what you want because it's real Christianity. It ends up being the extraordinary Christianity, but good old ordinary Christianity is actually what you need. And if you own that, you don't need to be intimidated because the ordinary is actually the authentic is what we're going to see in First John. So we need to be done. Let's pray if you would. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son. We're grateful that He came here voluntarily, sent by His Father, empowered by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit. We're grateful that Jesus did everything right as our representative. We're thankful that He was... Uh, He went to the cross and was treated as if He'd committed all of our sins, even though He never did. And we're grateful that He was raised victoriously from the grave as the righteous one. And He promised and gives us the assurance of new life in Him. If we trust in Him, His resurrection is our resurrection. And we look forward to that. And we look forward to the fact that He did promise to return. And He did promise to return to take away all of the tears, to take away all of the sorrows. May we be clear on these things in the days ahead as we study ordinary Christianity, which is so exceptional and extraordinary. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.